We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. This episode is sponsored by FX's Fleischman is in Trouble. Starring Jesse Eisenberg, Claire Danes, Lizzie Kaplan, and Adam Brody. This drama tells the story of recently divorced Toby Fleischman, who dives into the world of app-based dating with the kind of success he never had in his youth. Then, his ex-wife disappears, leaving him with their two children and no hint of her return. Effects's Fleischman is in trouble. Streaming November 17th, only on Hulu. Okay, ready? Think what you know, and it's about a time when you get yourself in a I want to this her ratio. Okay, though. This her ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. <laughs> The book is called The Eternal Audience of One. Yes, sir. Um, how long did it take you? <laughs> July July 2016 to August 2017. Uh, I sat down. I made time in my life. I, I let go of things. Uh, came home every day from work. I was working as a high school teacher at the time. Um, so I'd uh, teach from 8 till 1. I'd have lunch from 2 till 3-ish get my marking done and then in the evening interestingly i'd go run my salsa my salsa studio which is what i did in the evenings <laughs> and then uh, after salsa dancing after class which ends at like eight i would sit down and write until midnight get the work done but i'd also steal hours here and there like i know there's some assignments for some kids that should have graded on time and I didn't because I was writing in my free period. Um, but that's literally for for that that blessed year when I didn't have a lot of commitments in my life, when I did have, when a lot of the stresses were taken care of by this day job that I had, um, I could really sit down and commit and be disciplined about this thing. I didn't know what I was doing, which is why, for example, maybe it took me that long and why the first draft was so long. I was literally figuring everything out as I went along. Remy Gamije is the author of The Eternal Audience of One, an extraordinary first novel from a brother who was born in Rwanda, lives in Namibia. And I wanted to hear him talk about what it is to be a writer, what it is to be an African, what it is to be a black 
person in Africa, what it is to be a photographer who is also a writer, what it is to be a person who loves hip hop, both African and American hip hop as an African person. And I also wanted to hear him talk about his novel. Let's go. It's Remy Gamije, the author of The Eternal Audience of One on Touré Show. How did you become a writer? <laughs> uh, from primary school, I guess, because we always used to have necessary compositions at the end of, at the start of a week. Every Monday, we had to write these nonsensical write about your weekend essays. And because I was like a lower middle class immigrant kid in Namibia, my weekends were like the same, like just staying at home and watching very bad television. <laughs> and I used to fail a lot of those essays because. I mean, what else could I say? Like, I didn't have exciting things happening in my life. And then I remember one day, this was like grade three, grade four. And then I remember one day I got pissed off because I was like, I could read it. And they say like, Remy lacks an imagination and yada, yada, yada. But I'm like, I'm not, I don't lack an imagination. I'm just poor. Like, there's a difference. <laughs> uh, and then the one day I got pissed off and I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to write something about my weekend that didn't happen. And then I did. I lied that we went to the mall, that my parents told me this, that we went to see such and such. We went here in Vintook. And then I got like eight out of 10, as opposed to the usual four or five out of 10. And then I was like, oh, so this is what writing is. And then I carried on in that vein. But, you know, like everybody else, I think maybe most immigrant kids, you come to writing by, by virtue of the stories that you've heard. And I think by the power of books to make community. So the Vinter Public Library over here was a very, very big cultural institution for me and my brothers and my sister because um, we that's where we spent most of our afternoons and some of our weekends, either reading or being read to. And then just being part of that community makes you want to be a storyteller because you think, hmm, you know, what's that uh, typical adventure books kids have like a uh, famous five and the secret seven and the hardy boys like by enid blyton and then you're like hmm, these kids in london who always go hiking with their dog and they solve mysteries and whatnot you're like maybe i could write something like that and stuff like that and then obviously the asterix and obelix comics which we borrowed at infinitum comic books you just want to be part of out of part of that world of storytellers because you see how they bring communities together how i mean our whole family has stuck together because of the story of us. Like it's just us as immediate, an immediate family, but the stories about who we are, where we come from, those things have helped keep us together. And you? It's an interesting question. I mean, I, I always had a facility for writing in, mm -hmm. in the sort of school essay sort of thing I never got bad grades because it was like this, right? Like the science is difficult. The math mm -hmm. is tricky, but like the writing, you know, like do a paper on such and such and I would enjoy it. And they'd always be like, you know, you did good. You did good. And mm -hmm. I remember that Toni Morrison was first becoming really, really famous. Yeah. And I admired her and her work. And I felt like if I told my mother, I want to be a writer, she would think that was cool. 
And she mm. would be like, yes, that's a good, that's a good job. That's a good yeah. way to spend your time and your life and whatever. <laughs> she, she looked up to that as a profession. Um, but I mean, for me, the brass tax of it was more of a political gesture, mm. um, which in a way yours was a political gesture, but slightly yeah. different. But, but, but <laughs> when, I, when I got to college, um, my sophomore year, the black students had a party at a given location on campus. Mm-hmm. And um, the party you would sign like a contract for like the black student union or the black student association would like sign a contract for like, you know, all the little things. And part of it was like the party is going to go from, let's say, 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. Mm-hmm. And at 10 p.m., an hour early, the campus police came and said, you know, we've gotten complaints and, you know, you need to shut it down now. An hour early. We were very, very upset. We wrote, like, 20 of us wrote letters to the school paper and saying, like, you know, our upsetness with this whole thing. And um, they truncated our 20 letters into one letter with 20 signatures that sort of encompassed the things that we had said. And so we were very upset by that. We felt very silenced by that. And so I took the anger in the black community on campus from feeling silenced and saying, okay, we need our own thing. And so I will take it on myself to create a newspaper for the community um, that was called The Fire This Time. Only only black people could write for it. Um, It was all about like, it, it was all editorials about like what's going on yeah. for black people locally and nationally. We weren't nice. really, like we were thinking diasporically in terms of classes, like mm-hmm. in terms of like African, I was an African-American studies mm-hmm. major. So in terms of that, we're thinking, but within this, we were not thinking diasporically. If somebody wanted to talk about Africa, I would have been fine with it, but nobody was thinking about like, I'm going to write yeah. an editorial about what's going on in Africa. Nice. Um, so in doing that, I started to have a very direct relationship you know, like when you're writing a college, like the audience is like right there. So you yeah, publish something yeah. and then later that day, people are saying, I liked this. I didn't like this. I, you know, I argue with this line. Yeah, you there's know, no like, way to hide like, on yeah. campus. Yeah. So that, was, <laughs> so, so that was, but that was great for a writer, right? Yeah. Like they, you're, yeah. you're, it's like doing Broadway theater. Like the audience is immediately telling you like this connected, that didn't connect, this pissed people off. That got people cheering, whatever. Mm. So, so that was sort of the real sort of nuts and bolts of like, yes, this is fun. This is engaging. This is great. Um, so wait, your story really located, I'm so happy I can see you now. Your story really located you as a beginning writer, as a, as a younger person. But when you get into your teens and your early 20s, are there people you're reading or watching yeah. who are writers yeah. who are like, yes, that that's where I want to go? Yeah, man. I'm so in my early teen. So first, I'd say in my in my younger life, before becoming a teenager, all you read is what you're prescribed in high school. Everything that you're prescribed is predominantly British in origin. And man, at some point, just like, is there anything else out there? And I think towards my teens is when I started getting very confused about who I was and where I was in the world and my place in it, because, you know, I'm Rwandan born, but by this time I've spent more time in Namibia than I have in my country of birth. I have this history of a culture that I don't know much about, but I'm living in this other world that I do know more about that. I'm, 
I'm learning the history and I'm being involved in like the cultural and political life. And then I started getting confused. And then I cannot lie to you and say that my first experience was to run away completely from dealing with that confusion. So fantasy became a very, very, very big thing for me. Uh, magical fantasy. So writers like Terry Pratchett wrote The Discworld, uh, Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings. It's a weird thing. I'm looking for direction, but because I can't find it in my immediate geography, I instinctively just run away from it. So that's why I, I wound up in a lot of like magical fantasy, like elves, dwarves, whatever the heck. I would read anything just to like uh, at least displace me from my current concerns and uh questions that I couldn't answer. But I think in towards the end of high school, you mentioned the fire this time. I came across this wrinkled old book in the library called The Fire Next Time. And I was yes, just like, yes. and I read the first line and it said, the, the epigraph, and it said, and God gave Moses the peace sign, no more floods, the fire next time. And I was just like, what? What what is this? And I came across Jimmy at like at a time in my life where I was open and receptive to finding new things. And I remember I took that book home and I read it from cover to cover. To be honest, I didn't understand all of the arguments that were in it, but mm. there was the start of a curiosity. I was very I was like maybe seventeen, going eighteen, but there were things in it that he said about the American condition that seemed to make sense to me regards to the Namibian and African condition. And I remember that was the first time that I started delving into what I would perhaps call the formative years of the literature that will then start informing the things that I want to write. Jimmy Bald is an absolute hero of mine. And it's so oh, weird yeah. that you mentioned the fire this time. And I came across, it literally, I picked it up because it looked like a, like a fantasy book. It was old and it was wrinkled. I think it was the first edition. And I, and I remember in the library card, the last time that book had been borrowed out and taken out until I came along in 2006. The last time it was taken out was like 1987. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And it said that, and it's, I was just like, well, what is this book? And it's, his writings have been with me for a long time. And then, you know, a lot of our writing of that genre, um, I find it more, uh, what do you call it? En not engaging, but there's some lyrical quality to the way um, Black American writers write that makes, that sings to us here on the continent, at least to me in my current situation. And then slowly but surely, I started going into that world, especially towards university now. That's where, you know, we encounter Toni Morrison in class. And you're obviously being prescribed all of these other writers from abroad, but they're just not, they're not humming. There's no resonance. And that's, that was my Wait, journey into like my former, but I will say the first writer who made me cr think critically, James Baldwin. Well, tell me more about this notion of the lyrical writing Mm. of certain African-Americans yeah, yeah, yeah. was singing to you, like beyond Baldwin, you're saying yeah. Morrison, who else? And what, what, what do you mean? What, is, what, are they, yeah. what are they doing to you? So I'll talk about uh, one of my favorite, Ta-Nehisi Coates, The Beautiful yeah. Struggle. Yeah. He's writing about life in Baltimore, about growing up in a house with a very strict father, about his neighborhood, about his quest for Black identity. 
but he's also writing about him as a kid trying to fit in with life. Over here, there's very little writing about trying to fit in because everyone assumes you just fit in. Because it's predominantly Black people, everyone assumes there's like a uniform Blackness or a uniform Africanness. But when you live here, there are nuances on the ground that you can only sense when you're here. So like, for example, in, in Vintook, I am Rwandan born, but I've been living here for such a long time that I sometimes feel like I'm a Vintooker. But Vintookers will let you know that you're not Namibian because you're not from here. And so that creates a weird thing like, wait, but but I am here now. And so does that make me not from here? But navigating that is hard. Whereas with American writers, for example, the way they talk about their stories, they come from an in-between place. They weren't originally from there, but they've been there for such a long time. And even though they've been there for a long time, they're still not fitting in. So for me, when I encountered that, it was a weird source of comfort, knowing that it wasn't my fault that I don't fit in because I've only been here for like 10, 15, now it's 25 years. But if people can't fit into a place after 400, you know, what, mm. what, what, what can you do? What is my thing against that? And the way that they write about it, it makes sense to me because I'm in between. And there are very few writings from the continent about immigra- immigrants living somewhere else on the continent. Most of is the immigrants... Yeah. Is there something in the writing, in the the nouns and verbs and adjectives and the flow and the rhythm that you feel like is is really speaking to you? I mean, yes. you use you the word sing. Yeah. That, that was very powerful. Yeah. You guys you guys write in a way that, um, how do I say? It's like bars. It's like seeing performance. You you write in a lyrical way that that is more than just the... The, the theoretical or the abstract nature of the language. So Tanahasi causes this wonderful line when he says, I think in uh, in Beautiful Struggles, says, niggas are shooting free throws and calling out the name of the hero they want to be. So you're like shooting and you're saying Kobe. And you're like, that makes sense because I understand that. And we do that not only on the soccer field, but with a lot of other things. Um, and then there's also this idea, there's this sense of urgency that there's a writing, there's writing in it that, that seems like if I write nothing else, this has to be it. There's no dealing with uh, meadows or Jesus, high tea at four o'clock. It's very real urban life that speaks to us because also the precursor is that we're exposed to a lot of American television. So the codes that we're reading in the works, we also understand from movies, from songs that we understand. And I mean, you know, we're growing up, we're a hip hop generation. So when you write something that, sings that is that on the page it looks like it could be a lap a, a rap lyric for us it like resonates because we're like yeah we know this beat we know this beat but there's something else i think the lyricism in this is not a theory that i'm willing to back up or defend anywhere but i think the lyricism in american black american writing somehow resonates to something in our oral storytelling traditions here on the continent we might not write that way because we still have some of those oral traditions. So we still have aunts and grandmas and, you know, shamans and one of the people in our cultural communities who have that oral culture and tradition. Whereas in the U.S., perhaps that might have been removed, but then it still comes out in the writing. Like there's no, there's no stale when you're, when you're really about your craft, there's no stale writing. It's all like fire. It's bars. 
it feels like people are fighting with each other across the stage, like Toure's here and then there's Tanahashi and then there's Nicole Hannah-Jones. And then it's just like, it's, it's wonderful. And so that performative aspect of the language is what really is amazing to see. Whereas some writings from elsewhere value other things. They don't value the performance of the writing. They value... I don't want to shade nobody, but, you know, they like long descriptions about high tea at four o'clock in Kensington. And that's like half, and that's half the book. <laughs> I, I know for one thing, part of what you're describing. Yeah. It, it, we, we, uh, we, I mean, like I was very much taught that we don't want this style to overwhelm the subject. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I know, you know, I mean, like it's great to have style, but I don't want that to become the whole selling point or the whole thing the reader is hmm. is is taking in. I do want if I'm not communicating information to you, even if it's information about the heart or high tea or whatever, it, you hmm. know, if you're not getting information in a stylish way, rather than style with information, right? Then you're then you're then you're, yeah. you're putting the cart before the horse. But there are so many people in America who hmm. are doing interesting writing and doing it with style yeah um that to be heard to stand out to get attention when there's already you know mm -hmm. like 20 30 40 100 people doing it at a very like you have to like so you know like you have to, you have to really bring it you know i yeah. mean like it, it's like you know like the nba like to shine as a basketball player in america like you have to be like really 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 good because there's already a yeah. hundred really 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 good players yeah. Um, so I wonder if, it, I mean, like the oral tradition thing is interesting. Some would probably say, yes, we have an oral tradition, but surely not to the complexity of an African oral tradition. Um, we very much have a, an intense written tradition, um, mm -hmm. you know, from you yeah. know, the aforementioned names, Alice Walker, you know, yeah, Ralph Ellison, you go on and on, um, you know, Zora Neale Hurston, et cetera. But like... It, yeah, just just when you step into the arena now, I mean, like you feel the competition and it's love. Like you know, when yeah. I see Nicole Hannah Jones, when I see Tanya Heasy, like it's love. But like when you know when you're alone with your paper yeah. and you're like, you know, like they might read you, like other people and more people who read you will have read them. So yeah. you better come correct because <laughs> right, the reader is highly educated. But I think I think that's 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 so important not only within your community but within ours as well because you want to come correct you want to be able to perform and write your paragraphs and your book and your chapters to the very best of your ability knowing that there are other writers who are equally as good and that the readers have also heard of them I feel like that is a healthy level of competition and you know yeah. it just goes back to our ancient history when there were like big festivals and there were musicians. Everybody knew that Toure was the best musician in let's say Bamako. And so when I'm traveling to Bamako to perform at like a festival, I gotta come correct because the people know who Toure is. And it's not like uh, I'm competing against him. It's that his presence makes me want to be better than I currently am. Yes. And that is yes. important within the community and within the culture. And that's why I enjoy, I enjoy reading a lot of like writers from the U.S., Black writers from the U.S. and from the continent. Our nonfiction is quite different. So we're still dealing with a lot of very, very recent and very, very fresh trauma, just like the U.S., obviously. Uh, but for us, 
I'm not sure. Again, another theory that I'm not willing to stand on. Um, American, Black American writers might have had tragedy plus time to somehow also allow some of the writers to have this tragic tragic comic aspect or you're like, yo, that is, especially you can hear this in the, in the black comedians, like some of the stuff that make jokes about you're like, that is trauma, but because it's been, it's maybe in the past, you can laugh at it. Whereas here on the continent, it is a feeling that I have not, not something that I can prove that we have just the tragedy, but time hasn't yet allowed us to distance ourselves from it and look at it differently. So inside, because for example, you're, because yeah. your trauma as an African community mm. is ongoing, ongoing. is colonialism, is, uh, you know, the corruption. Is- yeah, colonialism, corruption, racism, apartheid, uh, disenfranchisement, the persecution of the LGBTQ community. There's just a lot of things going on all the time. So you never allow time to reflect or say, 30 years ago, no, 30 years ago literally is 30 minutes ago. Like this just happened. And that can sometimes, I feel like nonfiction sometimes suffers in that way because we're still dealing with our memory, dealing with our experiences. And that doesn't allow us time to just stop and think in a grander cosmic way. I feel what you're saying Mm -hmm. in that I feel like my generation in America is one of the first generations where, you know, we didn't have to be like literally in the streets fighting for our rights. And I'm not saying we're there, but like, you know, my father grew up, you know, in segregation, you know, they, Mm, they mm. saw, you know, the, the the movement through lynching through, you know, getting voting rights, like all these sort of things. And my generation, like, I could go to private school. Like we weren't barred from private school. There weren't that many of us, but we were mm. able to get in there, yeah. able to get into college, maybe to sort of like breathe and think like, what is this world around me rather than like, you know, being, you know, with Malcolm X or the Black Panthers, like in the streets, like fighting for it. And I feel like kind of what you're saying is like you and your peers, your generation, like, no, we're still in the streets of Africa yeah. fighting for, you yeah. know, liberation and equality yeah. and equity. Yeah. and Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the, the way I think about it is that our parents who were involved in our respective countries' liberation struggles, they had to fight those fights in order to get us what we call independence. Uh, by that, I mean political independence, i.e. Southwest Africa now becomes Namibia. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. 
one of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. As in, uh, Tanganyika is now Tanzania, i.e. independence to shape our own identity. But I think my generation, I think ours is the one that's supposed to bring us freedom, i.e. the rights and the opportunities to be ourselves in the way that we envision ourselves. And I think those are things that come in stages, they can't come all at once. And so, yeah, we're still in the streets, tour. We're still in the streets. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer, this is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Your whole thing is different than ours in that Africa is 54 countries. You're mm-hmm. quite often fighting against black people in many situations, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you're fighting against uh like rulers who like, I have all the money. Mm. <laughs> There's a few rich people, but I basically have all the money and, mm. you know, or I have all the guns and like, how do mm. we deal with these sorts of challenges from these? So, I mean, like the challenges for you guys are completely different than the yeah. struggle that we're dealing with. Yeah. We're thinking, you know, we're thinking that you guys are also a uniform nation and that's not really true. Um, People from the square states aren't from like aren't the same people like from New York, I guess. Not that I know the nuances, but you also aren't the same. And for us, I think here on the continent, with the 54 states and the diversity and all of those things, I think a lot of our fights really just come back to going back to the origins of who we were, knowing what we've lost, and then carrying on from there. Whereas a lot of the things that you mentioned. A lot of the things, struggles are caused by because a lot of our, 
our politicians, some of our leaders are also just proxies for whiteness. Um, they're controlled by things abroad and not necessarily forces on the continent. Um, and if we could reach a stage where we're just talking by ourselves for ourselves, it would be interesting to see what conversations we could have. Um, I always think uh, there's, a, there's a tweet that I saw that makes sense to me. It said, if you understand Haiti, you understand everything in the world. And that for me, that for me, and I, I've read so much Haitian history, it's, it's ridiculous. It's like the things that happened there, it explains in a lot of ways how a lot of things, a lot of our former colonized countries continue to not operate at their best way for the people that are there. And, you know, there's that sense of, I think there's that sense of like eternal punishment that has been meted out to black people, not only here, but everywhere. Like just, you just can't seem to catch a break. It was only like a month ago <laughs> or something that I learned that um, Haiti had to repay mm -hmm. France for having revolted for yeah. against yeah. their slave owners and having to pay like for like a century, they had to pay France like I don't know some yeah. ridiculous like a hundred million dollars yeah. or something, yeah. which yeah. that in and of itself kept Haiti in poverty for, for years. years because the government. I mean, they finished paying them, but like it took them like a hundred years. I mean, like so Haiti is paying a gigantic amount to France. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrivemarket.com slash Torrey on March 16th 2000 two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta Jamil Alamin a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted but the evidence was shaky and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial my name is Mosi Secret and when I started investigating this case in my hometown I uncovered a dark truth about America from Tinderfoot TV Campside Media and iHeart Podcasts Radical is available now Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. For, yeah. and, and, you know, people be like, how come these, uh, these black-run countries are so poor? Because the colonialist powers yeah. instructed systems to yeah. keep them poor. Like, what the fuck? How could Haiti survive? Of like, yeah. like, like, and when like, you think ridiculous. about those things, yeah, when you think about those overarching structures and how they play out and exist in the world, it explains, for example, why some states in the middle, central, and west of Africa sometimes really struggle because they're still dealing with the colonial powers. They might have left in terms of like the kings and queens have gone, but they've left other institutions 
in play that continue that narrative. And so you have like Haitia and I mean uh, Haiti and little ha- little Haiti, and you have when you read a lot of Haitian literature, you realize and you've read some Congolese literature, like we are the same people and we are suffering the same things. Yeah. <laughs> What has American hip hop yeah. meant to you <laughs> and your African brethren? Oh man! First of all, I have to say I did not like hip hop growing up because it was very fast English, and I struggled learning English. So I was just like, "What? What are they saying? What? I cannot understand." And when I arrived in Namibia, Biggie and Park had just died, and people were picking sides, and I was just like, "Who? Who are these people?" And I remember my brother and dad, like, how can you be big and small? We're really learning English. And we're like, how are you big? And we're like, what? So I came to hip hop late. I'd say like around grade eight in my high school career is when I really started diving into it. But hip hop, I think for us, is really at least the way we experience it here in the, in the US and might be different. But it is like a struggle and a way of really self-confident blackness from the U.S., from the minority population. So we see it and we're like, yo, these people are feisty. And, you know, when you read the the, the history of hip hop, it makes sense that it is that way. It's literally black people making music for themselves, about themselves, about the reality of the conditions in a world that does not understand them. And they celebrate and consume it by themselves. Until, of course, commercialism comes along and then becomes a big thing. But for us, when we were coming up and hip hop was playing, it was really this new, feisty, angry, radical blackness that was being made in a white world. And that was awesome. That was so amazing to to be a part of. Um, Obviously, it's changed with time, but that element still, still sticks, still there. And now over here, hip hop is still very big. And now it merges with other local uh, or continental forms of music. Uh, Afrobeat, for example, is, I think, coming into its own because now we're making songs from the continent and we're enjoying that. So, you know, just like how you have uh, rappers from Compton ripping uh, West Side, you know, that's their community. They rep it. Now you have musicians in Lagos who make music in Lagos and Lagosians love it. Not only Lagosians, but people in Cameroon would love it. People in East Africa will love it. And so that I feel like Afrobeat is coming to its own as a form of this is our music from here for us. But, you know, you can enjoy it if wherever it is that you are. And I find that amazing. But hip hop, for me, to this day, even when writing, you know, when I was talking about a, a line that sings, a line needs to have like fire. I can't rap. I can't perform. But this performing with a pen is my form of yeah. hip hop, I guess. Yeah, you can write yeah. us. Wait, yeah. are there, as somebody who loves hip mm-hmm. hop from the beginning to today, yeah. <laughs> are there, is, tell me about the, the, the hip hop scene that's happening over there on the continent. Yeah. Are there people who you're like, you know, because I don't know any African yeah, yeah, rappers, word, right? Word, like word. you're like you gotta you gotta check out this guy, you gotta check out this guy, you yeah. gotta check out this woman, whatever. Like yeah. like who's really who's really killing it over there? Yeah. So I will give you a very slanted opinion because our music scene here in Namibia is quite overshadowed by the South African music scene. So the South African hip hop scene 
is alive and well, like alive and well. They have stars. Are they? In are their they? Con- are they the most? Is that the most dominant scene on the continent? Are there other no, countries have a big, no. great scene? So regionally in Southern Africa, South Africa will be the biggest. West Africa, it's Nigeria. Probably continental, it's Nigeria. Um, and then I also hesitate to say what the difference between hip hop and Afrobeat are because there's like this merging that's occurred. Okay. And sometimes you don't know whether one is the other. But I think the biggest continental artist right now, for example, would be Burner Boy. But I don't know whether he classifies as, 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 as hip hop or as Afrobeat, Wiz Kid from I Nigeria is also I massive. don't feel, I love Burna Boy. I don't feel like he's hip hop. That's not a diss. It's just like, it. Yeah. I, I don't get the spitting from yeah. him, the rhyming from him. That's what I really want for hip hop. Yeah. I love his music and he has a very syncopated way yeah. of talking or yeah. chatting, but I get into like the music, the vibe, the rhythm, the yeah. whole it's the whole thing, yeah, and not like yo, but check out the bars, right? I have like that. Question though, how how would that change if you understood pigeon or the language in which he raps or sings in? I don't know. Let's yeah, in which he makes his music in, because I didn't understand hip hop properly until I understood English properly. Then I was like, oh, that's what a double entendre is. Whereas with a lot of the local continental music, people are singing in their native tongues. And so if I don't understand Yoruba or I don't understand Pigeon or I understand Tosa from South Africa, then I'm like, ah, I don't understand the bars. But that's probably a language thing. So there's like a lot of rappers on the continent who rap within their languages. And I cannot lie to you that because I don't have access to that language, I might not think it's hip hop, like quintessential I mean, hip hop. I mean, yeah. for when, I, when I'm first... Mm. engaging with a song even though i know the artist or not mm. a lot of times the first couple of listens you can't really understand the lyrics yeah but yeah. if you're really in the flow in the pocket and you're like spitting like that rhythm that's yeah. right in the right like i'm like yo i'm loving the flow right the flow is the first thing right like i'm loving this flow you've become another drum within this and like that's what attracts me yeah you can do that then i want to keep listening to the song to like dive into like what is every word what is this person saying right Uh and uh i imagine even if i didn't know what the specific words you were saying were i could still be like yo i understand what Burna yeah. Boy is saying, I think he has uh-huh. great lyrics. I'm just saying, he's just, I don't think it's hip hop because he's not, it's not rapping the same mm, way. Mm, and mm, I'm looking for, mm. and I know there are African rappers. So continue, continue with the, the list. Um, and then from South Africa, I think this one rapper called Questa is very, very good. K W E S T A. He's very good. Uh, I've enjoyed a lot of his his music and his songs. He's got a very good one with Wale that was very, very popular here in Namibia for a very long time called Spirit. Um, And then let me see. There's another one called Nasty C. Yes, Nasty Nasty. C. Uh, He's another South African rapper and this is very, very good. Uh, He's had a lot of... Yeah, he made a particular with Major Lazer and uh, Jidena, if you know that Uh one. Yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, from Namibia, I can recommend. Uh, let's see, who can I recommend from Namibia? Namibian rappers. I actually do not know 
a lot of Namibian rappers. You asked the wrong person, my brother, but I will find <laughs> it's one for you shortly. It's no, no, it's fine. <laughs> it's, whatever it is for you. Uh, so we have, we have, I'll, I'm going to go old school because this guy is, what is it? Yeah, we've got, no, let me tell you the quintessential Namibian band that you must listen to. Black Vulcanite. Black okay. Vulcanite are a trio of rappers uh, from Namibia and they have this, I think, for it's it's highly experimental uh it can be a little bit out there for someone who's not from here but i think if you go back to your history archive and go back to what's that band diggable planets <laughs> so they t- so no no listen 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 there's that weird nerd energy yeah. fused with like new world rhyme yeah. and then their their beats are also i don't know what kind of experimental but then the narrative is very modern and they're speaking about very very common political issues not only here in africa in on namibia but also africa and also there's like a lot of pop culture thrown in there and there's like some smooth r&b loving going on but it's a wonderful mixture black vulcanite if there's a Namibian rap group you need to listen to, it's Black Vulcanite. Yeah. Um, I know that you're also a photographer, <laughs> right? Yeah, and I'm yeah, curious, yeah. I'm curious how photography helps and informs your writing. Mm, mm. Does it make you a better um, writer? It makes me maybe not a better writer, but at least when it comes to aspects of realism or uh scene setting perhaps it helps what my photography i like a lot of is street photography trying to capture unique moments in everyday mundane life like you walk around and you try and capture a moment that aspect of hunting for that moment of tourists sipping his coffee just at the right moment when the lighting is hitting at four o'clock at sunset you know that moment of hunting for that one scene photography it also flows over to the writing because in writing, I'm trying to create scenes that are not everyday or humdrum. I'm trying to create things that stand out. And I, I feel like the closer or the more, the, the more often I find that in photography, when I look back over my work, I find my imagination stimulated. I also like a lot of portraiture work. Um, that's very intimate, very vulnerable type of type of type of photography, um, and it's also it actually demands a lot of skill. And I don't think I have the skill to call myself a portrait photographer, but I enjoy that a lot. But to capture someone in an interesting way or in a way that they represent themselves as best as they can really comes into thinking about characters, about who are your people in front of the pen as opposed to in front of the camera. Same thing, same vulnerabilities. Are you depicting them with dignity, with grace? How they, rep- how, how you see them is not how they see themselves. You know, those kinds of things come into play when, in, when we're talking about photography. And um, yeah, I enjoy, I enjoy that moment of hunting for scenes with my camera and then doing the same thing with my pen because I know, for example, on a pen, I mean, when we're writing, on the page, we're going to have ordinary people walking down the street, but then Ture comes along. How do I make this thing resonant? How do I make it stand out? Or 
how closely do I observe him so that he makes a movement or says something or trips on a on an unseen rock or something? And then that scene, how do I capture it as best as I can? It's it's actually, I think that's how I think about the relationship between photography and writing. Because what I know is uh, a, a lot of the writing can be humdrum unless you have scenes and characters and people who are interesting and vibrant. Yeah. Hell yeah. You, yeah. With writing... Really, I think, comes down to two different endeavors or two different moments, right? Like yeah. the moment when we approach the blank page yeah. and we have to create from nothing. And then the moment when we have to edit, like we have a full page and we have to like, you know, surgically slice it up. And I wonder if you have a, a preference or a favorite, like which one of those sides of the job do you okay. prefer or which one do you hate more? No, I I, I would say I love both of them equally because I haven't been doing this long enough to have a preference. So I'm not like you who's like got books out. I've got the book and it's so new and it's so fresh and I'm learning a lot that I haven't yet developed a preference to either. Uh, so I have I don't have that fear of writing because I haven't been doing, doing this long enough to, for example have that thing where I need to write this because uh, Ture read the last thing and he liked it and I must do better than that. No, nah, I'm just, I've got the first thing out and so I don't have that fear of reputation or or doing better. I've just got this thing. And then the editing, I love editing because uh, I learn a lot from my editors. And uh, once I've written something and I've let it go and it's submitted and whatever, I just work very hard to get my ego out and be like, now we're going to learn because everything that's ever been passed on from my editors has been helpful in the next bit of writing. Sure. I, yeah, I learn, I learn a lot from the process. The book is called The Eternal Audience of One. Yes, sir. Um, how long did it take you? <laughs> July, July 2016 to August 2017. Uh, I sat down. I made time in my life. I, I let go of things, uh, came home every day from work. I was working as a high school teacher at the time. Um, so I'd uh, teach from eight till one. I'd have lunch from two till three-ish, get my marking done. And then in the evening, interestingly, I'd go run my salsa, my salsa studio, which is what I did in the evenings. <laughs> and then uh, after salsa dancing, after class, which ends at like eight, I would sit down and write until midnight, get the work done. But I'd also steal hours here and there. Like I know there's some assignments for some kids that should have graded on time and I didn't because I was writing in my free period. Um, but that's literally for, for that, that blessed year when I didn't have a lot of commitments in my life, when I didn't have, when a lot of the stresses were taken care of by this day job that I had. Um, I could really sit down and commit and be disciplined about this thing. I didn't know what I was doing, which is why, for example, maybe it took me that long and why the first draft was so long. I was literally figuring everything out as I went along. God, you didn't. So did you set out to write a book or you just set out to like scratch your itch and then this? Developed? No, I wanted to write a book. I've, I've always wanted to write a story. I've always wanted to be a writer. But my life has not always presented me with opportunities to pursue it in a, in a constructive or meaningful way. So it's really chopped and changed. Um, 
I've always wanted to write this story, but I didn't know how. I thought about it as early as 2008, you know, voices here, scenes here and there, but I don't know how to put them together. Of course, you can read all of the writing manuscripts or what is it, uh, those writing pieces of advice and whatnot, but none of them really help you and your specific story. Um, and then I thought about it and then, you know, frustration built, 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 built until July when I was like, look, we're either going to do this or we ain't. And then we're going to, and then I sat down and I, I said, we're going for it. I don't know how long it'll take. I don't know what's going to happen, but I wrote the outline, wrote the chapters, what was the major incidences that were supposed to happen. And then I got assembled all of my journal notes, character sketches, scenes, timelines. And I said, it's time to write now. Because it's been floating around for, for, for a couple of years. And I was just very, very frustrated. Um, and then I had to get going, man. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you how did you how did your first one come along? Well, my first one was a book of short stories. Yeah. And um I didn't know how to write fiction. <laughs> I was a non-fiction writer and didn't know how to write fiction. I went to Columbia for creative yeah. writing school. Envy. And I I Envy. took a uh, come <laughs> <laughs> You you could get in there now. Come on, and I mean it would it would make you. I mean, like in, in, in creative writing school can make you a better writer. Yeah, it's yeah. not necessary, and you can get yeah. to a high level of writing without ever going to yeah, creative yeah. writing school. But um, but there's there's some value in it. Um, if you ever want to get a vision of what creative writing school is li- is like, mm-hmm. you know that show Girls. Oh dear, yes, I do know it. And and there was that a season was a where she went to the Iowa Writers yes. <laughs> Workshop. And yes. like when she's in the classes, like that was uh, that was an extremely accurate like emotionally accurate vision. Like a lot of it is your interaction with your peers. Like the professors yeah. are giving you direction and some lessons, um but it's higher level. It's not like writing writing they're not editors right they're not here to teach you like how to write and like a lot of it will be like the other people in the room telling yeah. you like like you'll write something and everybody gets a copy of it and everybody writes their opinion comments, of it yeah, yeah. and then the teacher tells you what they think but you also get everybody else's comments and you have to weed out like okay so those two people are good writers and they're my friends and they give me constructive criticism like with love that guy is mad because last week i said his piece was shit that girl is an idiot so ignore what she has to say that girl says everybody's shit is great that guy says everybody's shit is everybody's writing a shit so like you know so ignore him like but this time he actually said something really valuable because last time i said something really positive and valuable about his thing so you know so like a lot of them it gets very petty about you yeah, know so you have to like yeah. throw out you know 50 60 percent of it but there's a solid core there is a core there is a but uh, so i took a fiction class and yeah. so you know he talked to us for a little while and he told us to read some stories and he's like okay you got to write a story and i was like okay like you knew this moment was coming like let's go like you got to write a story and um, I wrote a story 
about a man in New York in like the 40s for whom white people become invisible to him. So everywhere he goes, he cannot see mm. white people. Now, they are still there. Nice. So he gets, you know, beaten up and arrested, like these sorts of things. But like, you know, he's not like he doesn't visualize white because I don't recognize them. And I remember presenting the story and the white kids were like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> and the teacher was like, that was great. I, I, you know, and, and, and I did more of a folktale fable kind yeah. of thing. And they yeah. were doing much more modernistic style. So yeah. they had like no idea like what I was doing at all. And, and they were definitely like, we don't know what to do with this story. We might be offended. We're not sure the style like the, and the teacher was like, no, 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 that was great. And, and um, so that gave me a lot of nice. courage yeah. and encouragement to keep going and I did a book of short stories because it seemed like the most accessible thing. Like to do a yeah. whole novel was like, like <laughs> yeah. So no, long. I, 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 I've, I've, I've heard this thing said that you don't know how to write a book until you write a book, and that that yeah. makes sense on some level. And so that's yeah. why, that's why for that year I just worked on this and I figured out my way through the woods. So for people who hmm. have not read it yet, yes, sir. Let's give them you know, like a truncated, like, you know, like just yeah. vision of like, if they start the book, you know, what, what, what is the story that they're getting into? Okay. So, um, a truncated version, but we're going to add some bars and some spice to this so that they get interested yes. in it. Um, what it is about is about this young man who is Rwandan born living in Namibia. He's about to face the final year of law school at a prestigious university in Namibia. Doesn't know where the fuck his life is going. Doesn't know what he's going to do after graduation. Very anxious about a lot of things. In that final year of his of, of law school, basically the whole history of his life and his family's life is explored. Um, and it basically explores his family's traumatic migration from Rwanda in 1994 to Nairobi, where they live for a while, to eventually settling in Vintic in Namibia, which is where their life then unfolds. But then there's this other part of him that lives in Cape Town in South Africa in one of the most cosmopolitan places in the world. And it explores issues of migration, friendship, love, race. There's a lot of sex. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a lot. Good. Uh, and it explores basically his the way an immigrant Black person navigates geography on the continent because it's not the same as it is in the u.s or the west or in uk or whatever so it's literally in um in in africa and it explores you know to some painful degree the ways in which we lock ourselves from other people the way we're unable to connect with each other because of things that have happened in our past or uh, biases that we have from the present um, and then it's written, I think for me, it's very modern. It's very millennial. So people have said it's millennial and I'm going to run, I'm going to jump on that wagon. It's very modern. So there's a, it's not written in an African pastoral way. It's very modern. It, it moves at a fast trot. There's SMS, there, there's SMS talk, there's chat groups, there's slander, there's shade, there's, there's, a, there's wit, I think. And then there's 
what I love most. There's a lot of music. There's a lot of pop culture in it. And you'd be surprised how, how you easily you can navigate the story regardless of where you are in the world just because it seems like there's a universal life we've all been living thanks to globalization, I guess, maybe. Uh, we'll sure. see. Um, yeah, but that's what it is. In the space of a year, as he moves through time towards graduation with things raveling and unraveling, um, there's a... His family's life explored from their life in from his parents' life when they lived in Brussels and Paris to Kigali and a lot of geographies are actually quite covered in the story. But it, it moves around and it's I think it's if you, that that would be the best summary I could I could give it. One of the one of the interesting things that I've witnessed over the last let's say ten years, yeah, at, with the, with the mat- with the maturation of millennial art, be it books or movies or TV, that 10 years ago, there was a very awkward way that texting and texting (laughs) language was was smushed into art. And it it felt like, oh, we're trying to make it cool for the millennials. And now (laughs) it's very, it can be very elegantly used and very... Uh, authentically used and mm. really like adds to the story and not just as like, this is for millennials to think about Michaela um, Cole's work. Um, I think yeah, about, yeah, the misfits, um, yeah, yeah. I just watched this movie um, um, uh, Zola that like uses oh, text. That was, fire. That, was that fire. was amazing. It's amazing. Let me, let, we'll come back. We'll come back to that movie, but carry on talking about Zola. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. I mean like, like in that you're, <laughs> that you're using texting i'm just curious how you approach the use of texting because yeah, we've seen yeah. a lot of art use it in clumsy ways yeah. and more recently yeah, yeah. in more authentic and interesting yeah, yeah. and 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 ways that like help the story more than just here's a bit of information but like yeah, the story is yeah, really yeah. in the modern world yeah i i don't i don't have a very well thought out academic answer to you but what i know is Whenever there's a new form of, of communication, to integrate into literature takes time. So yes. the early versions are always going to be a problem. But you can see how literature develop it, it finds ways to incorporate other forms of writing. Like the Victorian era writings where people would write the novel, but then there are letters in the novel. Like people writing letters yeah. to each other. That's That for me is a way to say like, well, look, that might have been new and adventurous at the time but it got integrated. Same thing with SMS talk and whatnot. It's uh, the digital ways of communicating get integrated literature because the stories change. There's no way I can, I don't know how I can write about me and you in New York if we're not talking on the phone because that's what we're going to do. So finding a good way to harmonize that is really the artistic struggle. Um, You need to find a way to integrate. For me, it was very, very simple because I had seen it somewhere else. I I knew it was possible because I'd seen Victorians put letters in their pride and right. prejudices. I knew it was right. possible. Yeah, right. and so I hammered and worked at it until I felt it was natural. But you yeah. mentioned Zola. That Tell film me. was hilarious. And do you know, have you read the original thread? No, no, <laughs> no. Dude, so get this. We are in... Um, I was in living in Cape Town at the time when this thread came out and Twitter was still in its infancy and threads weren't a thing. 
But I read this thing. I read the original Zola thread. Well, first, a friend was like, dude, have you seen this thread? By this time, there's like only like a couple of hundred whatever people on, on, on Cape Town Twitter or whatever. There's not a whole lot of people. But it's like, have you read this thread? And I'm like, no, I haven't read this thread. And so they send it to me. Dude, I, I, was in lect- I was in a lecture. I was supposed to be studying. I was supposed to be paying attention to like, I was in law school. I was supposed to be paying attention. And I'm on my phone reading this thing and I'm, and I'm canning myself. I'm in the back of the next theater and I'm like, this, this is hilarious. And then I remember reading that thread and I'm like, this is the way stories should be written. Like with fire from start to end, with colorful descriptions, lingo that comes from the street that we all understand. So there's this immortal line. I hope I can say it on your show. I don't know what your, what your, Bring what it. your things are. But Bring there's, a, there's this line where he says, this, this, this nigga's girl is lost to the game. No, this nigga lost in the sauce and his bitch lost to the game. Twitter was in a fucking meltdown that whole day. That's what everyone was talking about. Lost in the game, lost in the sauce, whatever. And it was such like this pop culture moment where we were all, we were all laughing and talking about the same thing. And I remember reading that and I was like, if I ever get to writing, I want to write not like this, but like stories that make people react in a particular way. Because that thread was crazy. And then the film came out and I enjoyed watching that. I thought that was very well done because I've seen that, I've read the thread and everything. I enjoyed that, the Zola film quite a, quite a bit. Um, but yeah, um, integrating digital speak was important for me because it's it's like a, it's a part of my life, I guess, part of everyone's life. And nowadays, I think with modern literature, it won't seem out of the way or strange if it appears there because we're Yo, so used to it right now. That's the dream yeah. to write something that would have the <laughs> effect on people that they would freak out the way like a Twitter thread would have people Listen, like freaking Twitter, out. I think, I think the, the founders of Twitter owe Zola a lot of money because people joined Twitter just to read that thing because you couldn't read it unless you were on Twitter. People opened accounts that day. They were like, have you read? It was, was wild that day, man. And it's a story that takes place in Florida, but somehow it has such a big influence, like a big I mean, it's such an, it's, yeah. an, it's an amazing story. I'm yeah. like, oh my God, this story. Oh my God. And it just, and oh it just, and it keeps escalating and it keeps becoming more unreal, but you're like, this is still real life. And I guess like you, you can't teach that. That's storytelling 101. That's like raw story. In the movie too, when they flip to like the white girl's side of things, <laughs> and I'm like, oh shit. Like, look at it. Look at this. Look at this bitch. Oh my God, she's lying her ass up. I was this uh, nice Christian girl. Oh, oh my God. Oh man. And the, and the acting I think was also very very good uh, I, I, it's gonna slip my mind right now but the girl who played Zola I thought did a wonderful job of delivering the lines my favorite one that I've now picked up that I'm saying now two hands on the bible I've just I've, since I was I'm like that's so dope I'm gonna start saying this now, two hands on the bible he well, the, <laughs> the, the moment that destroyed me and this is not gonna spoil it for people who haven't seen no, it no, yeah. um, but um, when the one character 
says he's going to kill himself, and the white girl says, "Do it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when when uh, when when the when the boyfriend is like, "Do it," and then that's the scene where it cuts to Zola, and she's like, two hands on the Bible, this nigga jumped, and we're like, "No, he did not." <laughs> and it's so dumb. <laughs> <Do it. laughs> Oh my god. Oh my god. One more thing. One more thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I ask everybody who comes on the show, and I don't usually speak to Africans. The show yeah. is generally African Americans, so I'm really yeah. interested to yeah. hear this from yeah. you because I ask everybody what being black means to yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have this whole conversation about being African American, but you know, you your 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 influences, your world is different. So what does being black mean to you and how does it show up for you as a writer? Um well as I'm very, uh, let me rather preface by saying that I'm still exploring and finding out what it means to be black. All that I know is that I am black by virtue of the history of the world because I've been put in this box. So I know that is, I know I'm black because I've been put in that. But it, being black for me means exploring through literature, through film, through music, through life, through dignity, through struggle what it means to be black, i.e. where do I come from? What is my place in the world and where it is that I want to be? How it comes through in writing is a lot of my stories deal with people who are not comfortable with where they are within their identities, whether it is age, whether it is geography, whether it is relationships, economic class, all of those kinds of things. Being black for me is really a way of self-exploration because it seems to me it seems to me that it is very clear to the world what it means to be white. Uh, with all that power, with all that privilege, it's very clear to the world what it means to be white. But what it means to be black is still unknown in some way, and it is still looked upon with fear. And it is my feeling, generally, that the people who oppressed us once upon a time and still are doing that are very clear about what it means to be black because they know what they're suppressing. They know what they're putting down because they know what its power is. And so finding that thing for ourselves, for me as a black man, is a way of freeing myself from that oppression, historical and present and potentially future. And then finding, once we find that power within ourselves, we'll be able to remove ourselves from our current Nightmares and challenges and difficulties. Yes. I mean, we're not going to remove ourselves until we are able to deal with the wealth gap. Indeed. Indeed. Until there's like some direct financial Mm -hmm. payment. Mm -hmm to us where we can suddenly access as a community like hundreds of millions or billions of dollars to where we can like materially change the lives of black until like i mean you know like we're not gonna like make a significant change until we have that and that may never happen Mm. it should happen it may or may not ever happen but because there's value to some people in like having us be the oppressed class but um yeah. So you're no. having, you're having you're having those interesting conversations about privilege and reparations in the US. You're yeah. de- you have a different relationship with whiteness whereas over here perhaps because in Africa there's a lot of black people, right? Uh, there's a there's a different relationship to whiteness with regards to that uh, uh, wealth gap. So there's when I say like discovering ourselves and our dignity and our grace and our power and all of the it's basically for me with when if you talk about economics it's reaching a stage where we realize 
we're not poor because we're black. We're black and we're poor because of things that have been done to us, because economic yes. policies, whatever. And that for me is that is that is the thing that we're working towards to get over this mentality that because of who we are, i.e., black, all of these bad things that happen to us happen to us by virtue of that thing. That's yes. bullshit that I can't accept. And that's what I'm trying to explore. That's why I enjoy reading a lot of books from black writers. Um, I enjoy reading a lot generally, but I'm curious about those things, how to get back to that place and then moving on from that place because we must move on. The world isn't the same and addressing that in the present situation and in the future because we know this is going to be a struggle today, tomorrow, the day after. Yeah. Thanks so much to Remy for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick... Let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.